0: Okay, this is not the media. This is hell. And if this was the media, or is it were the media, we would likely not be having the conversation we are about to have on policing as the more corporate and public establishment media far too often changes from being reporters and journalists to stenographers when reporting on the police. They take whatever claims being made by police public relations departments as facts, rarely questioning them unless there is public outcry over perceived injustices done by law enforcement. Sure, some of that changed following the deaths of Trayvon Martin in Florida in 2012 and the 2014 police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson and Eric Garner in New York City and the subsequent protests. Those increasing protests came to a head following the 2020 police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Yet those calls for defunding the police and seeking policing alternatives have faced intense blowback, as they always do, not only from the police, but their allies in government. As our guest today writes, the alliance of local government and the police is unassailable. That blowback was so intense that President Biden promised in his 2022 state of the union address that his administration would propose an additional 13 billion dollars to allow the hiring of 100,000 new police officers across the nation. Such an increase in the police means an increase in the power of police unions and their ability to affect elections moving forward, advancing their political agenda that has supported every Republican presidential candidate since President Bill Clinton of You know, but of course they supported President Bill Clinton. Clinton backed the expansion of mass incarceration through the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which was sponsored by then-Senator Joe Biden. So none of the expansion of police by Democrats in the White House should come as a surprise to anyone. Nonetheless, the campaign against policing as it exists in the United States today continues in each step along the way. That movement has grown with much of it moving past the idea of reform. And to the horizon of abolition. In a few minutes, we'll consider where that campaign was. Where it is and where it may be going When we speak with historian Austin McCoy Who wrote the Baffler magazine article After Floyd, if you can't rein in the police You can't save democracy Austin is an assistant professor of history At West Virginia University He also participated in the anti-police violence movement In Ann Arbor, Michigan He is currently writing a book on the history of the left In the Midwest, which sounds absolutely fascinating And you can also find uh, his work at Truth Out Austin is a self-described Old school rap specialist. You can follow him on Twitter at Austin McCoy, and then the number three, and on Instagram at Aus McCoy. That's A U S McCoy. I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Sebastian Vooper. Sebastian, anything new by you?
1: Uh, not not really, not really. Uh, just had a fairly. Lame weekend. <laughs> uh, I mean, at least we went out to, to uh, see a movie. We watched the uh, Banshees of Inner Shem. How is it? Uh, very bleak, uh, but also very funny. Uh, I liked that a lot. Chloe was a little blindsided. I have not had a time,
0: any time whatsoever, to watch a movie until I, you know, for for several months, even when I was uh, recovering from my surgeries, I never really had time to watch any movies. And this weekend, I watched. Uh, Everything, Everywhere, and All at Once. Have you seen that movie yet? Yeah, I watched that last week, and it like, immediately shot up to my top three movies of all time. I really liked it, but like I was telling my girlfriend, I'm just kind of, you know, like... I like martial arts movies, but I hate the fact that martial arts shows up in so many movies. I love science fiction movies, but I hate the fact that you know, like certain science fiction tropes show up in certain movies all the
1: time. You, you, know? don't, you don't like your, you don't like your uh, carrots touching your peas, basically?
0: Exactly, but at the same time, you know, I, I really like the movie. I, I, I'm not saying anything wrong about the movie. It's just that every so often I'm watching something that I really like, and they're doing something that I really like, and after the movie's over, I realize, you know, I'm falling for martial arts movies again. You know, it's just a weird thing. I'm not saying I didn't like the movie. It just was a weird afterthought I had. And also for the first time since the lockdown began, my non-wife and I went out to eat at a restaurant with friends and then went back to their place and played cards. After being fully vaccinated, we finally felt safe enough to socialize in a way that we used, used to before you know, hand washing, face mask wearing, and social distancing due to COVID. And it was fantastic. We also went out to breakfast that morning. It was, it was for the first time since the pandemic began, and we couldn't have been happier. Not worrying about spreading COVID as much as we have worried about it over the past two and a half years was a huge relief. And hanging out with fully vaccinated friends was absolutely wonderful, until I woke up the following morning with an awful cold. That cold, or whatever it was, RSV, the flu, or whatever, led to a fever which peaked at 101.6 degrees, but to the life-threatening, but due to the life uh, threatening infection I had this past spring, and the following surgeries I went through, which lasted until this past summer, I'd been told by my doctors that if my temperature ever, ever gets over 102 degrees, I need to go to the emergency room immediately so things were a bit touch and go for a while when my temperature was so high but the fever eventually broke nearly 48 hours later and to be honest I felt fine and was ready to return to the show although every time I've ever said on the show that I feel fine suddenly things take a horrible turn for the worse so I was hoping I was not jinxing myself yet again but I apparently did jinx myself. And the universe was like,
1: hey, Chuck, challenge accepted. Exactly.
0: And immediately after writing what I just read in preparation for the show nearly two weeks ago, I took a COVID test and tested positive, which explains why we have not had new shows since early November. I would say I'm feeling better right now, but every time I say that, I get sick again. So I'm going to leave it at I'm feeling well enough to do today's show and hope for the best but more importantly than me catching a horrible cold immediately after going out for the first time since the pandemic started that that cold turning into a fever and me yet again jinxing myself by saying i feel fine and then finding out i have covid
1: sebastian what is this week's question from hell for our listeners uh this week's question from hell is as you suggested what are you going to miss most about twitter and what are you going to miss most about twitter are you missing anything about twitter uh, I mean, it's still there. It's yeah. just, it's just perceivably more like awful than it, <laughs> uh, than it's ever been. And like it, I don't know, like I've been a pretty heavy Twitter user of, um, hi, my name is Sebastian. I have a problem um, <laughs> since like 2010 or something. Um, and uh, so I don't know, it's been, as I said on the show before, like it's been a part of my life for, for quite a while. And um, currently, I just really notice, or rather, well, let me me rephrase that. So, like, after the whole Elon (laughs) debacle started, um, it was kind of intense because, like, a lot of things were happening at once. And then now this has kind of died down a bit to uh, just a weird white noise of, like, a lot of super far-right nonsense getting swept up into my timeline um, quite a lot. Uh, I mean, I don't use the main Twitter app, so I do not use, like, Twitter.com or anything. I use uh, exclusively third-party apps, so my timeline is always in chronological order. I'm not enslaved to the algorithm. Like, they can't show me only, you know, like, people who bought (laughs) blue check mark um, or, or, or something like so far as, as long as the Twitter API is out there uh, it's it's like you can use third party apps and I would encourage everybody to do that because like the th- first party stuff is awful um, what's the third party app that you use because I don't know about these third party apps uh, you know? on, my, on my computer I use an, an app that's called tweetin tweetin or, to, yeah, like a tweet and ten in one word. Oh, okay. Um, it's basically like a, a plug-in where I think it just uses and reskins um, TweetDeck. I don't know if you know what that is. Like, TweetDeck is, is something that Twitter eventually bought up that used to be run by Adobe, I think. Okay. Um, And that's kind of like a, a, it organizes your 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 whole timeline and like your, your main timeline your mentions your likes other people so it's 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 kind of neat and I used it I used that for a long time and then it got bought up and I used some, something else and I eventually just <laughs> now it's tweeting on my phone I use uh, tweetbot Alright, well I'm going to
0: have to try those out because yeah. uh, the way that I, the only way that I use uh, Twitter right now is I made lists of different news sources and news sites that I wanted to follow on Twitter and I just go to my list. I don't even have anything to do with, with the actual you know.
1: I mean that's fine. You yeah. know, Twitter is a tool like anything else you yeah. can like, and that's, ideally you should be able to um, you know, configure it in any way that you that you like. But it's been a problem in the past, where it's like, oh yeah, now the timeline is no longer chronological. Tweets can, like, tweets go now <laughs> now go sideways. Uh, mentions are now called fluffs or whatever the hell. And like,
0: now under uh, notifications, you have mentions verified mentions is yeah, a separate yeah, one yeah. now. So, but you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash this is how radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at the cell radio or you can email it to chuck at com. but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner of the question from hell and
1: we so far do not have an alternative for where we're going uh should our account be deleted or whatever because apparently we are on the list of yes, 5,000 anti-fascists or something yeah which yeah we should be isn't but that also- awesome
0: That's yeah, awesome that fascists are uh sharing our Twitter handle as one that belongs to a a leftist organization or is run by leftists. You know what? Let's just thank the fascists for finally giving us recognition for all of the work that we've done over the past 26 years. Thank you, fascists. Thank you, fascists. Fascists. If if your answer is uh, our favorite, then you can get your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. Uh, The T-shirt that truckers, and winners, winter cap, the coffee mug, the face covering, the face mask, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from this century, as well as the tote bag. Yes, there's a This Is Hell tote bag and you can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Let's get to this week's uh, Hangover Cure and then we'll go right to Austin, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover This Is Hell and Sebastian has this week's Hangover Cure.
1: This week's Hangover Cure is, again, very Icelandic. Earlier this month, the website Icelandairwaves at grapevine.is posted the article Where to Cure Your Festival Hangover with, as the site says, quote, words by Irina Zumenko, and in fact, we found last week's Hangover Cure, the very Icelandic cure of going to the pool, in the same article. Uh, Subanko offers four other post-festival Icelandic cures, including food, specifically Icelandic food. Uh, Søbenko writes, "It's better to start preparing for the inevitable hangover early. The food you eat the night before can seriously affect what you're feeling, uh, uh, whether you're feeling well the next morning. But assuming it's too late and your hangover is here, we get you covered." Scientifically, it's best to eat potassium-rich food to cure a hangover, but we all know that once you're there, the only thing you're craving is some junk food. Suggestions from our team at Iceland Airwaves uh, differed, but there are tons of restaurants and food stalls in town to put you back on your feet. Consider trying one of these. Mandy, hlulabatur, Hlulabatur, Alibaba, that doesn't sound very Icelandic. No,
0: it doesn't. It's good to know uh, that there's a diverse uh, yeah. uh, you know, array of uh, restaurants yeah. in uh, Reykjavik cuisine. Yeah, uh, Halslestin. You know I picked this because I knew you were going to have trouble pronouncing these.
1: <laughs> yeah, just because I, I read them now for the first time. Yeah. Halslestin, okay. and our editor-in-chief's Hangover Day's favorite, Pünk. <laughs> that makes this week's Hangover Cure, Eating at a Restaurant in Reykjavik. <laughs> Tune in for more Icelandic hangover cures. There are gonna be more of those. Yes, <laughs> it's God. the rest of this year is just gonna be Icelandic
0: hangover cures Jesus just for you. Duck hunting, Christ. <laughs> uh,
1: there's tune in for more Icelandic hangover cures uh, and more of me mispronouncing or having trouble. I mean, you could you could also just use more Indian stuff, you know, like oh, that'll oh, work oh, too, just as bad as that. Yeah. Uh, throughout the holidays and into the new year.
0: Coming up on the show, our talk with Austin McCoy on the past, present, and future of the police protest movement. We'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash hell. We got some emails from listeners that were pretty fascinating. We'll be sharing those as well. And something is changing for us on Patreon and elsewhere, and we will be announcing that following our guest. We will also have a new edition of The Past Inside the Present, when producer Sebastian Vupper, who holds a doctorate in history himself, provides us with the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. This week, Sebastian talks about the prosperity gospel, the just world fallacy, and billionaires. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the real crime this is how many have suggested that as the protests against racialized police violence did not lead to actual defunding of the police those protests and by extension that movement was a failure. However, that would be a misreading of what protests are and what they can eventually be. Here to help us have a better understanding of the movement for real justice and democracy, historian Austin McCoy wrote the Baffler magazine article After Floyd, if you can't run, Ryan <laughs> Austin McCoy wrote the Baffler magazine article After Floyd, if you can't rein in the police, you can't save democracy. Welcome to This is Hell Austin. Hi, Chuck. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. And I have been looking forward to this interview for two weeks now. I really enjoyed this article a lot because I like it when people go back and look at protest movement and see what impact that they have had, a longer term impact on uh, our all of our goal to have more democracy, to have a better democracy. You write that in 2020, prior to the police killing of George Floyd, it had been a tough spring. In addition to living in isolation due to the coronavirus pandemic, you seethed at the news, the lynching of 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery in February, Amy Cooper threatening to call the police on birder Christian Cooper in Manhattan the same day Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, knelt on uh, Floyd's neck, and revelations about the Louisville Police Department's killing of 26-year-old ER technician Brianna Taylor. It all stirred the secondary trauma and psychic pain that accompanies living as a black man in a nation that seemed unwilling to reckon with its racist past. What impact do you think reckoning with that racist past of the United States, dating back to its founding documents that permit slavery are misogynist and refer to indigenous people as savages, what, do you, what impact do you think that would have on things like police violence in the United States? Is racialized police violence due to in to some extent, a denialism of U.S. history.
2: That's a you know a huge and uh, big question, and uh, no, I think if we were to try to you know actually reckon with you know a racist settler colonial uh, patriarchal past, uh, it would have you know I believe a a, a positive impact on every aspect of life, you know, not just including policing, but uh, I think in terms of thinking about the ways in which uh, law enforcement has worked in this country, um, even going back to slave patrols, right? I mean, it's, you know, police has been uh, designed to, uh, you know, rein in, uh, whether it's like rein in racial others or rein in poor people, working people, right? I mean, so, you know, like, I think if we really wanted to get down uh to the root of the problems of structural racism in this country and the history of it, uh we would have to examine the ways in which uh you know police has functioned, you know, not as the sort of protectors of every American or every citizen in this country, but has served as a uh bulwark, you know, against uh, you know, the rabble, so to speak, or uh those who are those those people who are marginalized. Uh, so no, it would cause us, at least I would hope, to sort of really rethink the ways in which our institutions, the ones that you know many Americans celebrate, have actually functioned. Now, obviously, uh, this is one of the reasons why there are folks on the far right and you know just some mainstream Republicans don't want us to learn, uh, you know, a sort of deep history of racism in this country or a history of settler colonialism. Of capitalist exploitation or patriarchy, because that means we would have to try to change something. Uh, and obviously there are a lot of people in this country who believe in the status quo, right? And this is one of the reasons why we've seen the sort of, you know, the sort of resurgence of white power ideology, uh, white nationalism, white supremacy, um, even as evidence with, you know, Donald Trump's recent uh, you know, meeting with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West, right? I mean, so there are black people, you know, him. Herschel Walker, who also believe or buy into uh, this idea of a white nationalist United States.
0: That's something that people, I've heard this repeated over and over again, that if you are an African-American, you cannot be white supremacist, nor can you be in any way supportive of white supremacy. How can somebody who is African-American still be a white supremacist?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what we have to sort of think of, right, is uh, white supremacy, anti-racism, right? I mean, like, these are ideologies, right? I mean, so, like, this is, you know, on the sort of flip side, I mean, uh, yeah, there are, you know, there, there's a long history of white folks, uh, you know, starting with John Brown, right, <laughs> who are willing to give their lives uh, to, uh, you know, fight against enslavement, fight against anti-Black racism, racism in general, uh, we're, and just like, you know, with that, there are you know, there have been there's a history of black folks who have bought into the idea that, well, they might be able to uh, sort of retain some privileges uh, as they ascend up, ascend the economic ladder if they buy into a white nationalist ideology. Um, so, you know, this is one of those, you know, um, you know, scenarios where yeah, you have class and racism actually working together with folks like Herschel Walker and Kanye West. Because, you know, if you think about someone like Kanye West, you know, as you know, you mentioned, you know, my hip hop fandom, right? I mean, like when he was first uh, recording, uh he was recording songs like two words that, you know, were critiques of racism. Obviously, one of the ways that uh, he entered into the national consciousness was amid Hurricane Katrina when he said that George Bush doesn't care about Black people. Now, he's obviously walked some of these comments back, but it's not as if those things didn't happen. But what happened was he became uh, more prominent. He began to sort of ascend the economic ladder within the uh, within hip-hop culture, and then obviously uh, within broader popular culture in general. And he began to identify with the, you know, and this is coming from him, folks like Walt Disney, right? I mean, and, you know, we want to talk about sort of Disney's history as uh, sort of born amid the Cold War, also sort of, uh, you know, when it comes to their movie characters, right? I mean, skewing towards white up until in the last 20 years, right? I mean, so like Kanye West has sort of found, uh, you know, inspiration in white billionaires and millionaires. And for him, it seems that another way to sort of continue, uh, up the ladder is to you know endorse folks like Donald Trump and sort of start uttering anti-semitic comments and to uh you know you know quote unquote be provocative by wearing anti-black uh you know clothes that he has that he's designed I mean so yeah this is one of those moments where we want to talk about, what, you know, black folks and why they might want to, why they might buy into white supremacy. Uh, A lot of times it's black men too, right? I mean, so it's this idea of being able to recuperate sort of notions of black masculinity uh, and masculinity like other white men, but then it's also about protecting uh, their wealth and protecting the potential to, uh, you know, sort of accumulate private property.
0: So then is white supremacy more about class than it is about race?
2: I think it's both. You know, I think it's both. Um, You know, I think when we think about it historically, um, because obviously you've had, you know, non-wealthy white folks who have bought into uh, white nationalism and white supremacy. Right. I mean, this goes back to W. B. Du Bois's argument about whiteness being a psychological wage uh, for some white workers. Right. Obviously not all white workers, but for some. Right. I mean, in this idea that you can have white folks who, uh, you know, May not be upwardly socially mobile uh, who can identify, you know, with, you know, wealth, but then also seeing white supremacy and white nationalism as a path towards that wealth, um or as a way to sort of recuperate any sort of, you know, perceived lost privileges. And uh, I mean, and some of this is, you know, historical, you know, sort of coming out of study, but then some of this is just even interacting. You know, y'all were talking about Twitter earlier and uh, no, like in 2015, 2016, I mean, I had the unfortunate experience of being trolled by some of these white nationalists. And, you know, and some of these folks wanting to debate me on Twitter about the merits of nationalism in general. Um, And no, like one of the arguments was, well, basically the, quote unquote, democratic experiment has failed. And, you know, the democratic experiment of the United States, quote unquote, has failed. And, you know, our solution should be to sort of turn into racialized, balkanized uh, territories in North America, right? I mean, so, um, and I didn't get the impression that these folks, uh, you know, that I was, you know, interacting with were wealthy by any stretch, right? I mean, so there's ways in which uh, white nationalism, white supremacy is a way to bind together, obviously, white folks, but it's also a path towards uh, wealth for many people, not just including white folks.
0: You write of your participation in protests against racialized police violence when you were going to the University of Michigan, when you yeah. were living in Ann Arbor. Uh, and you write that a few years after participating in frustrated efforts in Ann Arbor to hold the, the local police aco- uh, department accountable and the city's elected officials as well for the November 2014 killing of 40 year old. Or a Rosser, I mm-hmm. truly felt anti-race activists and organizers and the movement for black lives generally had taken a leap forward. The protests mm-hmm. represented the greatest collective instance of political education around racist police violence of my lifetime. The uprising led to more non-Black Americans engaging in protests and inspired many, including vast numbers of young white suburbanites, to learn more about the United States' histories of racism and colonialism. Why do you think the protests struck such a chord with young white suburbanites?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think um, on the one hand, right, I mean, I think just the visceral... Uh, you know the viscerality of uh Derek chauvin kneeling on uh George Floyd's neck and that being you know transmitted everywhere we were all um, you know or most of us should have been you know inside our houses or like you know kind you know isolated um due to the onset of the covid pandemic um so I think you know you have folks who probably you know might not have had as much uh you know, interaction with or experience with, uh, you know, sort of seeing ra- like racist murder. <laughs> I mean, because uh, for those of us who are Black, Brown, Indigenous, um, if we haven't experienced any sort of police harassment, and obviously, if we haven't sort of experienced any brutality, or if we haven't known anyone, we know of this, right? I mean, we some of us grew up, uh, you know, some of us are old enough to remember Rodney King and seeing that. Um, some of us are old enough to remember Amadou Diallo, who was uh, shot 41 times by the New York Police Department for having a wallet. Uh, so for some of us we know of this happening and and, and we might have seen it with Rodney King whereas uh yeah Trayvon Martin uh there is uh you know Michael Brown footage there is footage of uh Eric Garner, uh, but there were, I think there was something about uh being in the pandemic, in sort of trying to figure out, you know, how we were going to sort of move forward as a society, uh, but then also seeing a person kneel on another human being's neck uh, and kneeling on their neck, uh, treating them as if they're not human um, for eight minutes, nine minutes. Right. I mean, I think there was something about that visual combining with, <coughs> excuse me, the trauma of the pandemic, thinking about uh, Breonna Taylor being murdered in her sleep, um, that woke a lot of people up, right I mean like in in you know the I the 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 word be the word woke becoming an epithet among the right now but you know it truly woke a lot of people up, right? I mean, this murder woke a lot of people up and uh, yeah, it was like, oh we thought that um you know there were reforms after the sort of first wave of protests uh you know President Obama had you know created a task force to investigate, uh, you know, police murders, and then to try to uh, institute uh, reforms. You know, like, and we're all sort of learning that this also didn't work as well. Um, and it's like, wow. So, this is what racism looks like, right? I mean, like this, like this image, these eight minutes, Derek Chauvin kneeling on his neck is what racism looks like in the most bare form. And people, I think, were shocked. Um, and you know, they. Should have been shocked. Every you know, I, this was a rational response. The hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people streaming into the streets was an extremely rational response to what we've seen. And coming out of that is something that I hope for as a historian and as an educator. Uh, people wanting to learn more about well, how did we get to this point? How did we get to the point of Derek Chauvin deciding to you know kneel on George Floyd's neck uh, while George Floyd is screaming help, you know, screaming for his mother. Um, and, yeah, this is where we begin to get just not just protests, but, you know, more book clubs, more people wanting to sort of seek out histories, people wanting to read a 1619 project, people wanting to read more from uh, abolitionists like Miriam Kaba and Angela Davis in um, New York Times, even publishing a uh, op ed uh, written by Miriam Kaba, you know, that declares, yes, we literally mean abolish the police. Right. I mean, so um, now I think there was something about, you know, the sort of Just the brutality um, and the length of that brutality um, and us, you know, all being in front of our TVs. This was a real monocultural moment. Um, So I think you throw all of these into the pot. And I think what we get is a sort of heightened interest uh, in, you know, histories of anti-racism in the United States.
0: Miriam has been a guest on our show a few times and people can find all those interviews right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Kaba, K-A-B-A You write of the protests in 2020 Louisville protesters put up a memorial in honor of Breonna Taylor, Minneapolis activist, calls uh, to defund the police, announce the agenda of the second wave of Black Lives Matters protests uh, those dating back to 2015 In June 2020, the Minneapolis City Council voted unanimously to replace the police department with a more holistic system of public safety demanding cuts to police budgets and even calls to abolish law enforcement institutions were not new but the new political moment allowed people to hear these calls but you also add suddenly one could see signs with defund the uh, police at protests in cities throughout the country television pundits columnists and Public officials debated the merits of the demand, even the reliably, as you were just pointing out, center-right New York Times published an argument by organizer Mariam Kaba that affirmed, yes, we mean literally abolish the police. However, as you point out, as you know, the backlash against such arguments has been intense, leading some big city mayors like ours here in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, to end up Mm -hmm. funding police even more than before the protests. Prior to the midterms, Albuquerque police chief, Harold Medina was making claims that crime in the city was spiraling out of control. However, after the midterms, he tweeted... Now that the campaign season is over, I want, to be, I want to clear up the claims about Albuquerque's crime stats. Over five years overall, property and violent crimes are down thanks to the officers, detectives, and professionals throughout the Albuquerque <laughs> Police Department. So what role do you think the exaggeration of how bad crime is, what role did that exaggeration play in the backlash against the call for defunding the police? Did that exaggeration and that fear, is that what led to the backlash?
2: So I think that um, we start like basically when I think about the anti-police protests um, or police violence protests. But when I think about social movements in general, um, when I basically start from the from the uh, standpoint of uh, the United States uh, has some very serious reactionary currents that are that have always been coursing through it um, politically and culturally. Um, I mean, so, you know, if we think about even uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, you know, we can sort of surmise that, you know, the week before the date, the night of, you know, you already have reactionaries who are planning long, short term, medium term and long term strategies to defeat an overturn Roe, which they were successful this past year. Right. I mean, um, and I think this was this is the case when thinking about. Um, You know, the history of the civil rights movement, the history of anti-police brutality movement or Black Lives Matter or the movement for black lives in the last 10 years uh, where. Yeah, the police in the in the last 10 years have experienced a a legitimation crisis uh, that it had not really experienced before. Right. I mean, because the civil rights movement of the 40s, 50s and 60s was a broad based effort. Uh, to overturn Jim Crow, overturn racism, policing was part of it, but it wasn't the it wasn't the specific target. Whereas now, police is the specific target. All the pressure uh, that that anti racists are trying to place on a particular institution is going towards the police in many ways, at least nationally. Um, so, you know, you had like folks are prepared, right? I mean, folks on the folks on the right, folks in the center, Democrats, they're prepared for these protests. And in it in these sorts of uh ways in which you're going to like these folks are fear-mongering around crime, is part of a playbook, right? I mean, this is the playbook uh that Democrats and Republicans have used since the 1960s at the height of the civil rights movement, right? I mean, so um, you know, you have folks who are tapping into this play playbook, and it's sort of these uh claims that are being made in bad faith about crime um uh, are just illustrating how the movement is as much of a conflict over culture and, uh, and, and rhetoric um, and, and debate as it is, you know, a conflict in the streets, right? I mean, so, um, yeah, you have mayors who are, uh, you know, who are, um, you know, sort of trumping up crime. You know, you have other politicians who have done this. You know, I'm in Morgantown and we are in the Pennsylvania market. And no, all I saw was Oz and Mastriano and other sort of, you know, Congress ads um, during the midterms that were uh, flashing the same sort of stock footage of people committing uh, property crimes. Right. I mean, and sort of then sort of going from there to uh, using that as a critique of the defund the police demand um, or Black Lives Matter in general. Um, So, yeah, this is a this is a coherent strategy um, and. This was this has been here. Right. I mean, the the reactionary, the reaction to the protests were stirring while the protests were happening. You had folks like Donald Trump, Christopher Ruffo, um, who were trying to figure out uh, how we got to respond to this, because if we don't, you know, then they might win. Right. I mean, like 2020, the summer 2020, uh, at least so far, right, has been the closest we've been towards thoroughly delegitimizing policing in the United States. Right. I mean, and with the with an institution that's so strong to get there, folks on the right knew um, Democrats uh, like Abigail Spanberger, who is former CIA, knew that the police are in trouble here. We need to figure something out. Right. I mean, so uh, this wasn't just a oh, wow, people are protesting. You know, here comes the backlash. It's we're constantly trying to you know legitimize the police. Anything that threatens the legitimacy of the police, we need to strike out against. And one way to do that is to trump up crime um and trump up uh you know homicides trump up property crimes i mean because i just saw a headline i don't subscribe to the la times because i've subscribed to too many other things and but no like they ran a story about how retailers were also trumpeting up uh you know the instances of property crime right and then it's come and then you know la times puts out this investigation that says actually property crimes among retailers in retail like in shops are are down right i mean so it's just like you know this is all about uh you know securing legitimacy for the police as well as uh, folks protecting private property
0: you quote another past guest on our show the activist Kaliakuno, who warning in the summer of 2020 the empire mm-hmm. will strike back of yep. that there is no doubt so did the blowback make the situation even worse from the protesters' perspective than it was before the protest? Was this let's let's say this was two steps forward. These protests were two yeah. steps forward. Was this one step back, two steps back, and we're in the exact same position we were or three steps back and it's actually gotten worse due to the
2: blowback? I would say um, it is really hard to quantify where we're at. What I can say is we are in trouble, right? We are in trouble. And I think um, on the one hand, uh, this is why I uh, emphasize this in the article, uh, that's where most of the work is going to get done, right? I mean, like the national protests, those are great and they need to happen as frequently as possible because no, you can sort of, we can get a a leap in in national uh, in consciousness around this issue, right? I mean, like this could sort of lead to more transformative change, right? When you see a groundswell of people out in the streets, right? I mean, so uh, I am by no means a person that is going to downplay protests. Uh, but the a lot of the change that needs to happen in order to make police obsolete and prisons obsolete happens locally. It happens with organizers who are going to be trying to set up programs uh, that are that's about interrupting violence? Uh, going to they're going to be about setting up institutions uh, that train people in participatory budgeting and, and other forms of um, you know conflict resolution. Uh, per, you know, train people in the sort of practices of transformative justice. Right, those things need to happen for abolition to even have a chance at working. And it's hard for me to see. That the national conversations around crime, uh, totally affecting that among the organizers. Now, when we talk about a sort of national politics and a national discourse, and a uh, you know having Democrats and Republicans probably joining together to pass uh, you know future crime bills, that will be problematic for people, uh, especially for those who are marginalized and who are more willing or who are going to be more sort of vulnerable to police violence. So in that way. That is where we're in trouble, but we're also in trouble in a sense of, I think, what seems more threatening to me right now is this sort of resurgence of this, you know, or the continuing surge of white nationalism, anti-Semitism, anti-Blackness, um, and you have a group of people who are seem to be intent with, if we're not going to restore, quote-unquote, United States to the 1950s and before, where you know, white folks were were, you know, undisputably at the top of society, we are going to destroy what we have and try to build that out of the rubble. And that's where that's I think what gives me the most fear. Uh in terms of organizing, I think organizers are going to continue to do what they've been doing because they've been doing it for the last 40 years, despite the crime bills, despite the uh you know the drug laws, despite uh, the way, despite the expansion of the of prisons, you know? So I think it's a little complicated, but like, no, I, I'm more afraid in some ways of the of the white supremacists out here marching.
0: We are speaking with historian Austin McCoy, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article after Floyd, if you can't rein in the police, you can't save democracy. He's currently writing a book on the history of the left in the Midwest. You can follow him on Twitter at Austin McCoy, and then the number three, and on Instagram at a u s. McCoy. So uh, you also write that anyone who has confronted the power of police authority, buttressed by their unions and by politicians in both parties, will understand why huge demonstrations and strong public sentiment against police brutality are not enough. Though I hope the uprisings of 2020 would somehow break through, my mind reels back to hard lessons learned from my own activism in Ann Arbor in in the fall fall and winter of 2014. So as civil... Uh, Rights Corps founder and former public defender Alec Konestakis told us earlier this month, uh, police unions use taxpayer money, Mm -hmm. public funds, to fund political campaigns of those on the right and far right. To what extent is the political power of police unions funded by public money an obstacle to either party running on a campaign of police reform? Is the reason that there seems to be bipartisan uh support for expanding the police is is the reason that that is happening more than anything else the power of police unions and their ability to fund campaigns
2: I think that is a ser- that is a serious factor and uh yeah it, it's rather ironic in the sense of um you know democrats um uh, you know from you know the 1940s until the 1970s sort of uh being the party that Uh, relied on uh, trade union and industrial union uh, and service sector union, uh, you know, funding. And now, you know, from the 1990s, basically on, it's been, you know, the police unions as one of the sort of strong uh, institutions in electoral politics in this country. And um, yeah, like, you know, like, I think uh, on the one hand, you know, you have true believers. I believe Joe Biden is a true believer in the police. I mean, like, you know, so I don't you know, it's not even cynical to suggest that uh, he's going to go after, uh, you know, police union support, um, you know, in a sort of cynical manner. It's like he's a true believer. Um, I think when it comes to, you know, the power of the police unions, um, you you have the electoral politics and the funding in elections. But then you I think uh, where they are, you know, most dangerous in some ways is how they operate in lo- on a local level, being the spokespeople uh, who are going to be out there uh, defending the police when they murder Black people and they murder Indigenous people and they murder, they murder uh, you know, any person, right? And there's a groundswell of, of protests. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is where, uh, you know, unionists, uh, other leftists, you know, sort of come into play in trying to continue to pressure the afl CIO. To basically sort of kick out um, any sort of, you know, police union or uh, officer association that might be affiliated with it. Uh, because our country, the United States, uh, is a little different when it comes to the, into the role that the police play in society. You know, you might want some might want to argue that uh, police uh, are workers um, and they're part of a potentially progressive, if not radical, if not pro- uh, you know revolutionary class in this country. They just aren't. Uh, They just are not like and they have not been, uh, you know, they might be workers, but they have not been part of any sort of revolutionary struggles as an institution. Right. And I think we need to come to grips with that. And we need to move on that or continue to move on that, because there are there are unions and locals that are moving on this and activists who are doing this, Uh, but. You know, I think you know, that's one aspect, but then yeah, like the folks who are gonna come out and defend, you know, killing Trayvon, not Trayvon Martin, but defend killing uh, you know, uh, you know, Eric Garner, um uh, and you know, Mike Brown and, and all the other folks who have been uh murdered by police, right? I mean, like they like they are they they are the the opponent, right? They are the spokesperson. And they will, and that's their job. You know, they believe their job is to defend the folks that, you know, work in their union, even if they commit murder. Um, and it's rare when uh, you have a police union mem- uh, police union leader that is willing to sort of come out against a police officer. So um, yeah, like, I mean, they, they are a, a serious obstacle nationally, but they're also a serious obstacle locally because they have, they're usually within the, You know, the mayor's governing coalition, even if that mayor might be progressive, like the mayor of Ann Arbor.
0: Yeah, and you um, you make this point that uh, when it comes to the protests that you were involved in in Ann Arbor back in 2014 due to the police killing of Ora Rosser, there was not any slogan, policy change, or form of political engagement that was going to convince law enforcement in Ann Arbor to cede any power to its residents, especially those yeah. who might be the most vulnerable to state violence. We were and are fighting an institution that believes itself to be essential to an orderly society. To you, what explains why those who may recognize a need to reform police and policing still hold the idea that police are necessary for an orderly society? And are the two ideas, demanding police reform or reconsidering how police should function and police enforcing an orderly society, are those incompatible?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, I think, um, you know, this sort of goes back to the, to the long history of policing as an institution in this country. And you know, uh, folks who are like, who sort of, you know, believe in this idea of the quote unquote thin blue line, right? I mean, this idea that the police are uh, standing in between order and quote unquote anarchy, right? And this is something that, um, you know, has been around uh, for decades, right? This idea. Um, and so, no, like most Americans, many Americans believe in, th- believe in this concept, right? I mean, like this isn't something that is just a sort of fringe, you know, right wing uh, sort of uh, view, right? I mean, so when you have, you know, like when you have you know this view being so dominant, um, yeah, like it's you know it, it's a it's an organizing challenge, right? It's an organizing challenge to get uh, you know folks who are reformists, right who truly believe that these institutions are essentially good or can work for good uh, to think that actually these institutions that or at least the institution that you're trying to defend, is a violent institution inherently, and its job is to inflict violence on marginalized groups of people in the service of protecting private property um, or protecting, uh, you know, those who are the most privileged, you know, who usually own private property, right? I mean, so um, no, that's that is the challenge that we have uh, as activists in when it comes to talking with, uh, you know, regular people, talking with uh, elected officials. Um, and you know, getting them to think that you know, police, uh, you know, essentially is violent. That's what the job is. They're violence workers, as uh, you know, uh, Andrea Ritchie and Miriam Kaba have said. Uh, you know, so yeah, like I, I, I'm not. I don't think there is. I don't think everyone can be safe uh, with the with the type of law enforcement as an institution that we have uh, currently.
0: You also point out that many Americans not only adhere to the late Los Angeles Police Department Chief William H. Parker's Cold War-era delusion that the police represent the thin blue line, as you were just mentioning, between order and disorder, but many valorize the institution while having no experience with police misconduct. And one does not have to go far to find pro-police messaging or copaganda when they turn on the television with many shows presenting police as heroic at best and complicated at worst. Blue Lives Matter stickers plaster the bumper of cars across the country. So this reminds me of protesters at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, seemingly being perplexed by police using force to stop those protests, with protesters being heard saying to the police, we're on your side. How important is police giving deference to white America to having any public support? In your opinion, if police treated white America as it treats black or brown or gay or trans America, what would be the level of support the police have? Right.
2: (laughs) I mean, no, you're absolutely right. In terms of the irony there, Uh, what happened on January 6th, where, uh, yeah, you had the protesters who, uh, you know, thought that, uh, you know, like, how Russian soldiers sort of, you know, refused to fire on uh, Russians, you know, right before the Bolshevik revolution, you know, um, they thought that something similar might happen in, you know, at the Capitol. Um, And it did not. Um, And, you know, on the one hand, it's a matter of like, well, you know, those police are protecting, you know, it's like this very, you know, sort of stark contrast between protecting the system of representative democracy at that moment Uh, and, you know, like, but then if you think about, uh, the police, um, when they become the target, right. Of protests, um, then yeah, they will allow, uh, folks like Hal Rittenhouse to, you know, kill three people, you know, kill three anti-police brutality protesters or the long history of police members of the police being members of the KKK or the white citizens council. Right. I mean, so, um, you know, it's, January 6th in some ways you know one can argue at least for the moment was sort of a a, a a exception you know and those exceptions going along with the the few times that the US government has gone after white nationalists um in the 1990s especially um so yeah i mean on the one hand though this is where i think arguments about uh you know police and racism um uh, you know sort of weaken have we can sort of expand the the argument to to, to start thinking about well I mean numerically um, you know police kill more white Americans I mean like numerically right I mean like it's not disproportionate um, like with black people or indigenous people but numerically uh, you know white Americans you know ha- you know do uh, also endure police violence and the question becomes right I mean like you know where are these white folks you know what are these circumstances of these killings and of this brutality, Um, you know, because, I mean, I would, I haven't done a whole lot of research about this, but I'm ventured to guessing that, you know, many of these white folks who endure any sort of police harassment or violence are probably going to be working class or poor, um, especially poor folks, right? I mean, so, um, you know, there is that, right? I mean, but then that also gets, you know, it also forces us to sort of have to take, uh, you know, class exploitation and and economic inequality across the board more seriously, which I think is something that uh, many Americans um, don't, they also don't seem to be interested in that. Neither do Republicans and Democrats, if we're being completely honest, right? Um, They are like, people seem to be very interested in, uh, you know, you know, maintaining order and sort of finding the quote unquote most deserving victims of any sort of violence Um, especially when it comes to policing, you know, so I can imagine that there are some uh, white folks who are Democrat, Republican, moderate or whatever, um, who would say, well, that white person also deserved it, too.
0: So to what extent has the police become uh, a kind of special interest group that so often gets bipartisan derision? In in your opinion, why are the police not seen as a special interest group with their own political agenda that
2: is self-beneficial? I think I mean, that's a great I mean, that's I mean, you've read my mind in that regard because no, that's exactly what they are. That's what they've become um, over the last uh, sixty-seven years um, with the creation of officers' associations and and police unions. Um, they are a they are a particular sp- a group that dominant. Like they tend to win. They they win when it comes to budgets, right? I mean, like I mean, part of uh, you know the existence of these unions and associations is to bargain for you know not just uh, you know, better pay and, and benefits. But uh, no, like they they are organized and, they, and I think in their organization, uh, it's also about bargaining for, um, you know, increased police budgets um, and more resources, whether it's from the federal government or it's from local and state governments. Um, and yeah, like that's, we should see them that way. I don't think we see police as a special interest group And I think part of it is it goes back to the valorization, the valorization of the police, right? I mean, like, uh, so I think people tend to see the police as a, quote unquote, good institution comprised of mostly good individuals, some of whom might, quote unquote, be part of our family, um, part of our families. And yeah, like they, quote unquote, keep us safe, right? It's people buying into all the sort of, you know, uh, positive, quote unquote, uh, you know, ideas of what police are supposed to do or how they are supposed to function or how they are envisioned to have, you know, envisioned to be functioning, right? I mean, so they're very much a political organization operating in the United States, and they have a lot of power locally, you know, statewide and federally. Uh, But I think it's only been within the last 10 years uh, with the emergence of the Movement for Black Lives that, You have some people beginning to see that, but the people who begin to see that, I think, are those on the right, (laughs) right? So I think the folks on the right accept the idea that the police can be a special interest group. Um, You know, I think this is why you get, you know, Trump flags that are thin blue line flags, right? I mean, like, the right has embraced the idea of the police as being political. Um, And that's why, and that's how they've engaged uh, sort of That's how they've engaged the anti-racist movements on the streets, you know, through police or through policy or through rhetoric. Whereas I think folks on the left, well, I won't say left, I will say Democrats and liberals, I think they continue to try to see the police as an apolitical organization that is meant to, quote, help us. But that's not what that's not what it is.
0: You write of those fighting for justice in all its forms, whether it's against racialized police violence or in any form most important, they speak the language of democracy and inclusion, but not in the way you'd ever hear from the leader of a police union. As Kathy J. Cohen, a University of Chicago professor and the founder of the Black Youth Project, wrote in November 2020, the rebirth of our democracy lives in the possibility of protest organizing and as Frederick Douglass famously insisted, agitation. Earlier this month, we spoke with political science scholar Nozhan Katami, who posted mm-hmm. the Boston Review article, The Lifeblood of Iranian Democracy. Nozhan Zhang writes, democracy is born out of and maintained through resistance. What, Mm -hmm. in your opinion, happens to democracy when agitation and resistance are absent? Can democracy be maintained, as Nojang puts it, without resistance and agitation? Not just expanded, but just maintained.
2: Right. Absolutely not. Um, It cannot be um, because... We live in a system that's obviously um, dominated by, uh, you know, capitalists and property owners. And, you know, they're using their money and their resources to do whatever they can uh, to, uh, you know, keep workers in line and to keep, uh, you know, most people um, from, uh, you know, wielding any significant power over them. In our very flawed representative democracy, <laughs> like I mean, because we are already starting right. I mean, like when we think about the system of democracy in the United States, I mean, democracy needs to always go in quotes because it's it's very limited, very, very, very limited. As we've even seen with the Electoral College, which was born uh, out of you know um, enslavement, the system of slavery in this country. Um, so, yeah, if we only if we're only going to resolve ourselves. Uh, to voting every two years or every four years, uh, especially with, uh, you know, folks with more money and more power, uh, whether you're talking about uh, those in part of the uh, capitalist class or Democrats or Republicans, um, I think we will die by very slow asphyxiation um, if that's all we're doing is voting. So um, yeah, like resistance, protest, uh, you know, Doing whatever we can to build alternative institutions uh, that will sort of help introduce people to ideas of transformative justice, alternative ideas of public safety, alternative ideas and strategies for uh, allocating uh, money and 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 budgeting. Um, you know, getting people to think that uh, well, if we have. You know, these tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to police or trillions of dollars that are going to uh, the military or trillions of dollars that are going to rich folks through tax cuts. What could we do with that? What kind of society could we build? Um, but you have to sort of be doing that work on the ground. And part of that work on the ground, in addition to building institutions, is to protest. It is to protest. It is to organize. It is to resist uh, any sort of encroachment of any sort of reactionary white nationalist or fascist ideas and ideologies, because if we don't do that on a daily basis, as much as we possibly can within reason, as much as we're able to, uh, because not every single person is able to get out into the streets and March, um, then, yeah, it's going to, we will... It will be a slow death, you know, which I think is what we might be experiencing now. And, pe- and there, I, think, I think there are more Americans that are sort of wising up to this idea that, oh, no, we need to do a lot more um, in addition to just voting.
0: So is the police, this idea of them serving and protecting, is that a pretense that both the police and the public engage in, including the media? Do we all engage in this pre- pretense that they serve and protect us?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think most... I would say this. A lot of Americans buy into it, right? A lot of Americans buy into it. Um, And there, there are Americans, I think, especially in the last three years who have, you know, been questioning this, right? Um, It's something that I, you know, growing up, I really didn't buy into. (laughs) I mean, I think part of it has to do with uh, growing up black, having, you know, parents like my mom, you know, she gave me the quote unquote, talk all the time, you know, all the time. like, You know, this is what you do is something happens and you encounter the police. But you know what? You can't trust them. You know, (laughs) you just can't trust them. Uh, You know, so, uh, you know, for me, you know, I grew up with it. I grew up with it, you know, listening to, you know, Public Enemy and listening to, uh, you know, other hip hop artists. Um, And so, like, it's been part of my life. um, But I think many Americans hadn't really experienced the idea that the police are a violent institution until 2020, right? I mean, so six years after, uh, you know, the the killings of, uh, you know, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, or Rosser, um, you know, and then even, you know, uh, 12 years after the, the killings or, or, you know, thir- 12 or 13 years after the killings of, you know, Sean Bell, right? I mean, like, people are, start- like, there's more Americans that have started coming, to come around to the idea that maybe the police aren't supposed like aren't here to serve and protect us. but I think we're still in the minority. Um, and I think that is sort of evidenced by um, you know the ability of mayors and of folks like Joe Biden to you know, talk about quote unquote refunding the police or never, or never defunding the police.
0: One last question for you, Austin. We've been speaking with historian Austin McCoy, who wrote the Baffler magazine article after Floyd. If you can't rein in the police, you can't save democracy. You can follow Austin on Twitter at Austin McCoy, then the number three and on Instagram at AUS McCoy. One last question for you. And it's what we call, we do this with all of our guests, don't worry. We It's what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to okay. ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I think I'm going to hate <laughs> the way that you respond to this. Uh, I'm critical of police. We've had tons of guests who are critical of police on this show. So am I a hypocrite? Are you a hypocrite if you or I call police?
2: <laughs> this, is, this is a very complicated question, right? Um, and... I would say this, um I'm not going to sit here and judge anyone for uh doing what they think is best for them in a particular situation um because no, it's something I think about, right? It's something I think about what what if something were like what if something terrible were to happen uh to like you know a family member or my sister uh, you know, because no, if something is stolen from me, I'm probably you know. <laughs> I mean it's just like I mean if I'm not being mugged I should say you know um and if it's not something that I'm like wow like I really wanted that you know um but the this is the problem with policing uh it's it's tentacles are sort of intertwined in everything right i mean so if you're talking about property crime right i mean if something happens and something is stolen from you you probably need to go get a police report um you know so yeah like i mean you you're going to have to walk into the police station and file a report Um, If someone is, if someone is abusing you and you feel like you don't have any other place to turn, uh, you're probably going to turn uh, to the police. Um, So, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and call anyone a hypocrite. What I'm gonna say is that it just means that, you know, we have a clear job, which is to try to build strong communities and build institutions and build and forge relationships, uh, you know, with folks that we live around. Um, to where you know we feel safe amongst each other and we feel like we can you know solve problems amongst each other and yeah like I mean if someone is if my if something happens to me and my sister calls the police I'm not going to berate her you know so um yeah I think it's I think it's just very complicated you know it's very complicated um I'm not I'm I'm just not in the business of trying to judge folks when it comes to that anymore I would rather just have conversations about it and sort of figure out you know how can we best, interrupt violence, how can we best build, you know, connections amongst each other to where eventually, uh, you know, as Angela Davis, Miriam Kaba, Andrea Ritchie, um, all the, you know, abolitionist feminists who've been taught, you know, who've been trying to tell us, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, right? How do we make police and prisons obsolete? And it starts with us.
0: Austin, I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been like 10 years since I actually called the police, but that was due to my neighbors being in a running gun battle with other neighbors yeah. of mine. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. call the police when that's going on. When you hear 14, yeah. when you hear 14 shots outside your back door. It's scary. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> that, is, that is scary. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, you know what you should have done? You should have done that. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I just can't, I can't bring myself to be, to go there.
0: Right, right. Austin, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show. When you are close to having your book done about uh, the history of the left in the Midwest, uh, please contact me or we'll be uh, looking for your publisher to uh, announce that uh, book because we would love to have you back on the show.
2: Yeah, I'd love to be back on. And uh, no, I appreciate y'all reaching out. And I'm glad that we were finally able to connect and, and talk.
0: Yeah, and I'm not dead. That's a big plus.
2: <laughs> That's also kid. I'm like I said, keep my fingers crossed.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Austin. Great talking to you.
2: Great talking to you too. Take care.
0: Take care. Staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is hell. Now a word from our sponsors, and as we are completely listener-supported, we refuse to have any you know advertisers so we are and have always been completely commercial free we do not accept corporate funded grants or any foundation money which means we do not make enough profit to actually afford to be a non-profit either as you are our sponsors tell us what you think give us your constructive and destructive criticism send us your guest or topic suggestions or anything you would like to share via email facebook twitter And if you do, we will likely read whatever you send us on air. If we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during that conversation. Uh, Last week, listener Aaron B., whose Twitter bio says he is less smarter than you think, tweeted, For God's sakes, people, you go on about shows called silly things like Chapo Trap House and Jimmy Dore Show and The Young Turks. And I'm just like, y'all are wasting your time. Those shows will never love you back. Harsh, but true. Y'all don't listen to This Is Hell, and it shows. Aaron, while I don't know about uh, throwing shade at Chapo, Dor, the Turks, or their listeners, as I've never listened to... Yeah, you can throw shade at Dor. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I just I've never listened to any of those shows. And the people who do those shows have likely never heard This Is Hell the exact same number of times I have never heard their shows, and that would be a total of... Zero times I've listened to them And they've probably Listened to us Zero times as well But we do love Our listeners Because without you the show would not Be possible In fact We appreciate you all So much That we invite All of you Every week To join us for our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think. This is how office hours, which takes place every Wednesday night, rain or shine, even when freezing or snowing at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Of course, we are taking a temporary break. Uh, from holding office hours until I test negative for COVID, and I will be testing tomorrow, so we'll be finding out if there's a this-is-hell office hours this week. But a few weeks ago, a listener who lives in Rapid City, a couple of listeners who live in Rapid City, South Dakota, told us uh, that, well, uh, Steve and his partner Megan were going to be passing through Chicago, and they wanted to drop by for office hours. It turns out they were wrapping up a a two-month road trip that included going through Canada down to the east coast of the U.S. And across the Great Lakes region back home, making a pit stop here for office hours. After hanging out with Steve and Megan, uh, Steve emailed me saying, hey Chuck, thanks for hanging out last night. We had a great time. What you guys do really means a lot to me. Steve had mentioned a book while we were sitting in the beer garden around the fire pit. It's a book uh, on outsourcing research. The book is called When Experiments Travel, Clinical Trials and Global Search for Human Subjects by anthropolog- anthropologist Adriana Petrina. The publisher's webpage for her book says when experiments travel provides a unique perspective on globalized clinical trials, when experiments travel raises central questions. Are, it's, are such tri- uh, trials exploitative or are they social goods? How are experiments controlled and how is drug safety ensured? And do these experiments help or harm public health in the countries where they are conducted? Steve adds, you might also like Andrew Skull and David Healy. If you're not familiar with them, Skull is an excellent historian of psychiatry and I think he He published a new book just recently. Healy is a psychiatrist that has done some great work in bringing pharma, big pharma, BS to light, among other things. Uh, If I think of others, I'll let you know. Thanks again for showing us around your studio and sharing your evening. Also, it sounds like your partner is pretty amazing. Take care, Steve. You are correct, Steve. My partner is amazing, especially when I'm giving my very biased view of her, well, drinking. Also, Andrew Skull does have a new book out that was published in May, and it was titled Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. So thanks, Steve, for suggesting we have Andrew Skull on the show to talk about, as his publisher describes it, the devastating treatments doctors have affected on their patients, especially women, in the name of science, and questions our massive reliance on meds. Steve, it was great meeting you and Megan uh, during office hours. And if we end up having Andrew Skull on the show, we will thank you during our interview with your suggested guest. If what you just heard from Austin McCoy on the movement for black lives in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd, if that scared the hell out of you as it did me or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast which streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support by just going to this is hell.com and clicking on support if you do become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise but you also get 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently are not available Anywhere else online on last week's Patreon podcast, I was finally well enough to come in here and do a show without worrying too much about the possibility that I may transmit the coronavirus to the good people who work here on the show. But while the media is reporting, we are not seeing a surge in infections as we did last fall. There are definitely new variants that are far more uh, easily transmittable, with symptoms being more intense than the earlier Omicron variety of COVID. So, if you have some friend of yours who told you tells you that, like, eight months ago they had COVID and it wasn't so bad, well, the Current COVID is actually worse. Over 300 are still dying every week on average here in the States, which is up from less than 20 dying each week over, only a little over a month ago. While seven-day averages for infections are leveling off at around 40,000 and hospitalizations staying just below 3,500 every week, the U.S. is about to hit the 1 million mark when it comes to how many people reported having covid 100 million, sorry, 100 million mark when it comes to how many people reported having COVID. And we know that number is underreported. So it's like one in three Americans have probably had COVID. Nonetheless, many in the U.S. are talking about the pandemic as if it is in the past. And if it's a thing that, and it's clearly not something that is in the past. Some are even... Waxing nostalgic about the good old days of the pandemic when we had the time and resource to pursue our own personal interests rather than working to make someone else even wealthier than they already are.
1: And let's not forget that the whole thing is still a mass disabling event. Every time you get COVID, you're basically rolling the dice whether or not your brain will survive this in its current state and, like, various organs it's like it's a cornucopia of the gift that keeps on wrecking your organs so uh yeah keep mask
0: and especially with what i'm still recuperating from so last week on patreon i looked back at the pandemic that is still very much here and considered everything from how our social identity got mixed up and our own personal responses to the pandemic to why looking back wistfully at the worst days of the virus can be a slippery slope toward some believing we need to Make the pandemic great again. And as uh, I mentioned uh, when meeting Steve and Megan from South Dakota during This Is Hell office hours, uh, he got in touch with me about, you know, you should interview David Healy. Well, in fact, Healy was on our show way back in February of 2005 after he claimed Prozac and other drugs like it can be addictive and cause suicidal tendencies, which despite those claims being very unpopular, turned out to sadly be true. David has also recently testified in the deaths of two, had also recently testified in the deaths of two grandparents murdered by their 12-year-old son, in which Dr. Healy believes Zoloft may have been the case. But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon podcast at thisishell.com slash... Or at uh, patreon.com slash thisishell Uh, And as I mentioned earlier We are doing something new On Patreon after Jeff Dortchen suggested during Last week's Patreon podcast that I actually Check out listener Comments on the Patreon page Listener Gregory K then sent an email Saying the same thing so I clicked on a Link Gregory sent which was To a comment he posted on Patreon that states community Chuck That's the name of the section of the Patreon site. We need you to participate in and lead our community discourse here. Let's get this is how Patreons uh, involved in a good civil discourse about the Patreon podcast and uh, how about some input from your great producers as well. Love, Gregory. And that is exactly what we will be doing moving forward. Our producers now all have access to the Patreon podcast. So look for us on Patreon in the community section where you can share your thoughts on the show and be part of the discussion about potential guests and possible subjects uh, that we'll be discussing on the show moving forward. Again, we love the support. You all show us, and we want to make it so you can be a bigger part of the show. After all, This Is Hell is completely listener-supported. We want to get as much support for you as we want to show as much support for you as we can. There's also a new This Is Hell Discord page, which I'm going to now ask Sebastian to explain as he is the person who set it up. Sebastian, what the hell is Discord? Uh,
1: Discord is basically, I, I keep describing it as, as IRC, but like more corporate uh i don't know if you if you still know what irc, IRC is
0: information resources
1: something <laughs> internet relay chat okay uh irc is like a uh, was i mean it's still around um i don't even know why people still use discord because discord is i mean discord has like nicer emojis and stuff but irc uh used to be just like you know chat rooms like okay the yeah. very bare basic bare bare bones chat room right thingy um and you used like one of those
0: like we had one of those a long time ago.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and like a uh, uh, Discord is kind of the same thing, just with a corporate rapper and like you voice chat and stuff like that you can do through it. I mean, and, and or, or if you're familiar with Slack, um, that's basically Discord. Discord is basically basically Slack for you know the leisure time, where Slack is more professional. Um, so, where
0: can people find our Discord page?
1: Um, Because we're not paying for it, we don't really have an easily shareable uh, URL. Um, I've shared it on Twitter. I've shared it on Facebook. um, And I will do so again uh, later today or later this week. And, uh,
0: Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding.
1: Uh, This week's question from hell is, uh, what are you going to miss about Twitter? What are you going to miss about Twitter? Um and uh, da, 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 any responses listeners yeah listeners are oh, actually crazy. responding on, on Facebook um, let me just uh, switch this to newest oh, I hate this. okay uh, Fabio L says the continuously pending promise of Kissinger being next when a celebrity dies oh, never happens Hammer and Hank is going to be around for way too long mm, uh, Kim G says ruining a band name with one letter Okay. Hashtag small feces. John C writes The Friends We Made Along the Way question mark. Alright. Jeff Jeff G writes Tanky Hot Takes. Uh and Mike Mike Mayberry writes uh that it became a culture war weapon for normies with short attention spans to pan their designated billionaire bad man. Alright. Um Brian G writes nothing. That's good. Uh, Concise. Yeah, Amanda, the Amanda W. writes, nothing. Don't use it. I mean, yeah, I get it. Um, Duck H. writes, it may survive. I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty in, good. Not in the form that it's basically already a zombie. But whatever. Yeah. Warren L. writes, what is Twitter? And Steve C. writes, the loose ends.
0: Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. It's now time for Dr. Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present when Sebastian, who has a Ph.D. in history, gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Sebastian, take it away.
1: The past inside the present. Today, I want to talk about the history of a deep-rooted logical fallacy that shapes quite a lot of American society today, and this is somewhat related to the news um, and golden to the news off uh, surrounding and uh, pertaining to golden boy Elon Musk and uh, the way he and his misbegotten ilk are portrayed in American media, and why that is. So if you are a billionaire, you are very, 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 really unfathomably rich. Especially when you have not one or two, but tens or even hundreds of billions of, of you know, basically whatever currency, I mean, especially dollars. Um, in everyday thought, we really don't grasp how much those sums truly are. Um... Basically, this wealth is enough for cento-billionaires, if you want to call them that, to essentially be, well, gods walking upon the face of the earth. And I'm not trying to be cute here. Their wealth is so absolutely vast and so, so much higher than anything any of us mortals can ever hope to achieve that they are essentially untouchable by any of our mortal means. If they break the law, they will always be able to pay for the best lawyers and politicians to keep them away from consequences, and... uh, Even if those things should fail, they can always pay their way out of things. I mean, how much is it going to cost in fees, you know? Like, how many billions? Um, Meanwhile, society puts these people on very, very tall pedestals. Whatever noises they make on any given day gets them to the front pages across the country and, by extension, the Western world. Their opinions matter. Whatever field they wish to have an impact on, they can and will. They will be listened to always, regardless of how much actual applicable knowledge they have of anything. Because their vast, unimaginable wealth is seen as proof positive of them being incredibly smart. Would a person who is less than a -a once-in-a-generation genius be able to accumulate the most wealth this side of John D. Rockefeller himself? If that was possible, the world would not be fair, and goddammit, we live in a meritocracy where hard work pays and crime is punished and the cream rises to the top. That is the American way, only that this is actually a fallacy. It is deep-rooted in American popular belief and the myths that Americans tell themselves about their country. And this fallacy comes out of the deep depths of American history, because it is ultimately linked to the religi- religious convictions of the Puritans, the mistaken belief that meritocracy is a real thing that's basically directly traceable to Puritan pred- predestination teachings. I talked about this link before, basically that the Puritans, or rather the Calvinists out of which the Puritans develop, at least if you adhere to certain interpretations that Max Weber, the sociologist, the grandfather, the... Founding father, if you want, of sociology, as uh, stated, um, that the Calvinists, out of which the Puritans developed, believed that every human who was at birth already destined to go to heaven or to rot in hell forever after death. And the trick was then to figure out if you were blessed or cursed yourself. If good things happened to you in life, you were blessed. If bad things happened, well, outlook for eternal salvation wasn't great. And this was strongly tied to material success, meaning... If you did well in your business life, that meant God loved you. If you ended up poor for whatever reason, it meant that God, well, didn't. Likely probably hated your guts, actually. Which is actually a great way to not care about poor people at all, since their status in life is obviously a result of them somehow having brought God's wrath upon themselves. Um, By the way, this is um, also one of the reasons why I don't really like saying that something is karma, because that is coming out of the Hinduistic system, where the the Hindu belief system where, you know, people who bad th- that have bad things happen to them, um, are basically also sought to, you know, have brought that upon themselves, either in this life or their previous life. Poverty is just an outcome of karma. Yeah, basically. Um and this all of this is the undercurrent of belief in how people do within society. Um Today, that's kind of informing that, and this is ne- is not necessarily neatly expressed in any specific denomination of Christian belief. Just like, just like this, at least not quite like this, not historically, and not before the late nineteenth century, anyway. And uh, so, in the late nineteenth century, at the time when industrialized capitalism ran rampant around the world, and suddenly there were excruciatingly rich people in America, a thing that would result in today's prosperity gospel movement emerge in several instances um and so this is sort of like where I, I'm I'm trying to explain like why do yeah so so why why do we believe that that billionaires are 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 so um you know important and always right uh just because well they're it's it's proof positive that they, because they are successful that means they deserve to be successful um and that sort of like goes back to this to this belief, and that is, par- and there's a certain parallel to the, the race of the prosperity gospel. Um, so, one of the most inf- influential sources for the prosperity gospel movement uh, was... Uh, the Acres of Diamonds lecture given by Baptist minister and first president of Temple University in Philadelphia, Russell Conwell. In that speech, which he first gave publicly in 1882, Conwell basically asserts that the vast majority of wealthy people in America were fundamentally good and honest people. Um, He went on to say that being wealthy is a Christian duty since one needs wealth to do good. Quote, money is power. And you ought to be reasonably ambitious to have it. You ought because you can do more good with it than you could without it. Money printed your Bible. Money builds your churches. Money sends your missionaries. And money pays your preachers. And you would not have many of them either if you did not pay them. I am always willing that my church should raise my salary. Because the church that pays the largest salary always raises, raises it the easiest. You never knew an exception to it in your life. The man who gets the largest salary can do the most good with the power that is that is furnished to him. Of course, he can, if his spirit be right, to use it for what it is given to him. Unquote. A lot of this thought came out of the Pentecostal movement, with it, with its focus on spirit healing and to believe in actual miracles and whatnot. And in that, in that early prosperity gospel coalesced with a new thought teaching, a 19th century spiritual movement, so there were a lot of 19th century spiritual movements, by the way, um, that preached mind over matter Christian faith healings and supposedly gave rise to the Church of Jesus Christ Scientist, which I should add is not a prosperity gospel church, I just like to say Church of Jesus Christ, comma, Scientist, it just always cracks me up. Um, anyway, and uh, in the late 19th century, these religious movements coalesced again together with the spirit of the time that encouraged individualism, but also sobriety and the mastery of oneself. Even capital M mesmerism features in this origin story of all of this, because, you know, like mind over matter. Um, and all of that was then projected back upon itself through the teachings of one Essek William Kenyon, a popular in, in, influential radio evangelist. Kenyon basically preached that all of the non-Christian mind-over-matter teachings were mumbo-jumbo, but that if these same teachings were informed by and channeled through the Christian God, they would actually work. Prayer could, in fact, heal people, move mountains, the whole shebang. In Kenyon's wake, other radio preachers followed, who basically said that any truly believing Christian could achieve full perfect health just through faith, prayer, and spiritual healing. Uh, as in going to church and having a healing priest there, laying hands, yada, yada, yada. Um, all through these things alone, a good Christian, if they truly believed, could achieve full perfect health forever. And out of this school of thought emerged the idea that faith, prayer, and spiritual healing were not just limited to physical health, but also could be applied to material well-being. This, again, gave rise to the spiritual, religious concept of positive thinking, which is not just radical optimism, but the firmly held belief uh, that thoughts can essentially alter reality, and uh, that by focusing on positive outcomes in thought and prayer, good things will eventually happen. And then after World War II, Christian faith healing and the spiritual healing of a Christian's pocketbook um, had finally firmly merged. Popular faith healers shifted to writing about spiritual financial success. In the following decades, prosperity gospel teachings then made the jump into televangelism. From there, prosperity gospel has since spread like wildfire. Most prosperity churches aren't necessarily easy to identify as such, though. Some of them are very, very big, like Joe Osteen's megachurch in Texas. Uh, And after all, 50 of the biggest, 260 American uh, biggest churches can be classified as prosperity churches. Uh, Many people in America and around the world want to believe that positive thinking and being faithful and uh, the power of prayer and being in God's good graces can and will bring them material success. Because that is the world God made. It is a just place where no good deed goes unrewarded. So, that brings us full circle back to today's ultra-wealthy. Is it any wonder that in a country where quite a lot of ostensibly Christian churches preach that greed is good, actually, we arrive at a point where being stupefyingly rich is not seen as a failure of the system we live in, but as a personal, unchallengeable achievement. Our billionaire masters deserve to make more money than any of us in a lifetime (laughs) within minutes, they worked so much harder than everyone else. It must be God's will that they uh, that they are so fantastically rich. So obviously, whatever a billionaire so obviously blessed by the divine has to say must be important. And not just important, but right and correct, regardless of the subject matter. Which is how we get to a complete fraud and charlatan, building electric cars and building rockets to Mars. He does neither of these things. He just tells people... You know, to, to do that, ignoring OSHA uh, regulations and, uh, you know, basic human decency. And then also the cars that he builds explode and the rockets just really work in spite of him. Um, SpaceX, whistleblowers, by the way, have gone on record recently that they essentially had a distract Elon division. So work could actually get done. Bill Gates has wrecked American education even more than the field w- uh, than the field was before he started to meddle. The man has no more a clue about education than Elon Musk has about engineering. Neither have applicable degrees or much know-how in either field. And yet, because they are so stupefyingly rich, the American media and, by extension, the American public believes they must be right about everything. Jeff Bezos gets easy airtime saying that he wants to give away his like. A large part of his fortune uh basically as a strategy to just distract from amazon laying off a massive amount of workers um and when these people don't succeed with these things well then it must be somebody else's fault or worse somebody else plan to sabotage their triumph or as is the case with elon's twitter debacle they actually plan on going for broken failing for some reason but because well we need these comforting lies that the very wealthy deserve their riches, that hard work always leads to success, and that the wealthy are just smarter than everyone else, that the world is a just place. We, we all know that this is hell, though. The wealthy are just as dumb as we are. They're just better criminals. They don't really have much of a plan. They just never were told no or ever had to live with the consequences of failure. And so they just go on and break things for everyone without there being any sort of intention or plan behind it, and that actually, to me at least, is much, much scarier than there having been a cunning yet malevolent plan behind everything. Uh, Yeah, because ultimately we do live in hell, don't we?
0: (laughs) Oh, what a happy, happy thought. And you know, behind every great fortune is a great crime, but very rarely is that crime investigated. I saw a televangelist this weekend, Sebastian, saying that Guys are really into cars, and seeing, and seeing cars gets them really, really excited. He then added, I don't know what gets women excited. Maybe it's the color of their drapes? That was pretty outstanding work by a televangelist. Because
1: women don't get excited by cars.
0: I don't know. Proving meritocracy doesn't exist since 1996. This is Hell. Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell.
1: Uh, coming up Tuesday is uh, John, yeah, Jan, Jan. Jan Dudkevich and Spencer Roberts, who wrote the New Republic article, How the Meat Industry Undermines Effective Climate Policy. Jan is a policy fellow at uh, Books McCormick Jr. Law and Policy Program at the Harvard Law School. And Spencer is a science writer based in Colorado.
0: Spencer apparently has uh, quite a following, and a lot of people are very excited about that interview that we'll be doing with him, and he's got a lot of writing out there, so you should be following
1: uh, Spencer Roberts on uh, Twitter. As long as it's still there. Yeah. Uh, On Wednesday, we have Mick Dumkey, who is a reporter for ProPublica. His work has focused on politics and government, including investigations of local and federal gun policies, secret police databases, and corruption at Chicago City Hall. Mick will be on to discuss his reporting on the growing Chicago Housing Authority scandal. Mick's most recent article on the topic at ProPublica is headlined, Chicago officials withhold key financial information as city hands public housing land over to wealthy ally of the mayor.
0: If you are here in Chicago and you don't know about that uh, story, I'm not surprised. It's not the kind of thing that the local TV news media discusses and uh, it, it will show up in the sometimes in tribune, but it's just not being as covered or talked about As much as you would hope Also coming up later this week We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast Which streams on Thursdays at patreon.com Slash Hell. We'll hear a singular moment of truth From Jeff Dorchin during this week's moment Jeff discloses the identities Of key crisis actors In their previous performance credits and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell who will then choose their choice of this is hell merchandise as a prize for winning the question from hell and we'll be revealing next week's guests as well in fact i just confirmed one during uh sebastian's the past inside the present i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz thanks to sebastian vooper for not only producing but another edition of the past inside the present